Well, good morning, folks. Um, this morning, I want to draw our attention back to the book of Revelation. We find ourselves in Revelation chapter 16. And I want to read again verses 12 through 16. Uh, the sixth angel pouring out his bowl on the great river Euphrates. Uh, next week, I anticipate to have one last study on this section. And that section would be uh, highlighting next week on verse 15, Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeps his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. Um, obviously, he's not talking about just, you know, being against streaking publicly, which, of course, I'm against. <laughs> but uh, he's actually talking about something else. But here this morning, Revelation chapter 16, verse 12. And it says, The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates, and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs, for their demonic spirits performing signs, who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle of the great day of God, the Almighty. Behold, I'm coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. Lord, I pray that as uh, we communicate this message, that you would touch our hearts. I pray, God, that you give clarity to our minds, is that there's so many things that we're worried about right now. You told Martha, 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 you're worried and upset about many things, but only one thing is needful. And Mary has chosen what is better. She had to make a choice. And so, Lord, this morning we're making a choice. There's a thousand and one things that are going on, and the world's getting crazier and crazier. And you said in your word that men's hearts are going to fail them for, for the things happening upon the earth. And you said in your word that in the day when all this chaos goes on in the world, that our hearts are in danger of being filled with dissipation. In other words, Screw all this, I'm just going to go back into the ways of the world, and I'm going to live like I used to live. And that becomes kind of a, a place that we think is refuge, and for, for a short moment it is, but it has a biting hand behind it. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd help us, Lord, as the Scripture talks about the perseverance of the saints. That's not a, an exclusive Calvinistic understanding, but rather that we would endure to the end. And I ask, God, that you'd heal our hearts and give wisdom to the speaker, probably more importantly, that you'd give ears to the listener, and that you'd receive your crown and your glory. We pray for this grace in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, when we take these verses as literal, the ones that we just read here in chapter 16, it's actually a pretty easy chapter to begin to understand. It doesn't require that more than one Bible study, I think, to, to teach the whole of the passage. It, it basically says the Euphrates River dries up. The devil sends out demons to gather people for the great battle of Armageddon. And Jesus warns that he's coming again soon. Pretty simple. One Bible study, we're done and move on. But when I think we look at the passage a little bit deeper, when the sixth angel here pours out his bull on the great river Euphrates, it suggests, I'm going I'm to suggest to you, it signifies a much more significant biblical event rather than just kind of like, hey, you're going to war. It's not just the physical act that's key, in other words. It's an event that is consistent with the theological message. And thanks, Jared. I, it's my new favorite word, by the way, theological messaging. But it's consistent with the theological message that is given to us in the Scripture itself. And as a background, in the Bible, there's two great cities. There's Jerusalem and there's Babylon. Jerusalem represents the city of the great king, and it's associated with God's presence, with his righteousness. It's the good place. It's the place from which he's going to rule for a thousand years and set up his millennial kingdom and usher in peace upon the earth. The prince of peace will come to Jerusalem. And in contrast to that city, biblically speaking, we'll see Babylon. Babylon is described in the book of Isaiah as, quote, a haunt of demons, actually. And it symbolizes a place of spiritual corruption. And it symbolizes a place of isolation. It's in the wilderness. It's, it's the antithesis to the Garden of Eden. The Garden of Eden is the place where God dwells, remember. And yet the wilderness is where Babylon is. 
And in fact, every indication is that it's actually the throne room of the devil himself, which is there in the city of Babylon. It's desolate and it's empty. Geographically, the positioning of these two two cities are relatively uh, uh, interesting in relationship to each other. Babylon is situated in the east. Jerusalem is situated in the west. And in this sense, the picture given to us in the Bible is that man is either moving in one direction or the next. You're moving to one of the cities or to the other. He's moving towards Jerusalem or he's moving towards Babylon. He's either moving east or he's moving west. And you see this pattern that's given to us in the scripture. In fact, in the book of Revelation, because of the earthly Jerusalem is corrupt right now, it says in chapter uh, 11, it's spiritually Sodom and Egypt, which is not a complimentary term, but because it's corrupt, it highlights the heavenly Jerusalem that's going to come down and reside upon the earth. But the point being is that there's still just two cities. And the point that I'm making here is that there's this directional symbolism, for the lack of a better term. I don't know if I made that up or not, but it's directional symbolism. And because of this, the Bible carries profound theological messaging. Take, for instance, the the very beginning of the Bible with Adam and Eve. Their disobedience in the Garden of Eden got them expelled, and the direction that they went after they're expelled is eastward. Interesting. Cain kills his brother Abel, and then he's banished, but he's banished towards the east. And thus, the east represents a departure from the presence of God into the place of isolation and temptation, actually, and possibly, keyword, an introduction to a journey into a life of sin and darkness. And in the opposite extreme, going west, remember that was on Go West, young man? (laughs) Going west is often linked to the life of righteousness and faith and obedience to God. And so Abraham, he's in the earth, the Chaldees, in the east, but it was called of God to journey west and into the land of Israel. The children of Israel, when they leave Egypt, naturally would have come in through the southern border of the nation of Israel, or even arguably from the west. But as instead of doing that, they go through a series of events that leads them, by God's direction, outside of the land of Israel, and they ultimately cross the Jordan River from the east and going towards the west. And you see this over and over again. Or or the Magi coming to see the Christ child or the Christmas story. They traveled from the east into the west. These were all expressions of righteousness. Going westward, something righteous is taking place. And thus you look at the book of Ezekiel, for instance, and you see that when the glory of God is departing from the temple of God because of the sins of the people, it symbolizes the departure of God's presence and holiness away from the city of Jerusalem. But when God returns, it tells us later on in the book that he will come through the eastern gate of the city, which implies which directions he's moving. He's moving west. He comes back opposite of the direction in which he left. And thus the theological symbolism of east and west in the Bible it becomes evident when examining the patterns of the movement. So when Jesus faced temptation by the devil, he crosses the Jordan towards the east. It was was an evil thing, emphasizing the spiritual, demonic battle that he was actually in. It was an evil thing, but it was a necessary thing. He went east. When he had victory, he came back and he went west. And in the context of Revelation 16, the drying up the river Euphrates, I'd suggest to you is likewise a crucial eschatological event. The kings of the east, even though they're very wicked kings, they're being gathered together by God to the battle of Armageddon. Their judgment is severe, but it's a good thing because evil is finally going to be destroyed. And thus it describes in verse 14 this day as, quote, the great day of God the Almighty. It's not a good day. It's a great day from the perspective of God. Notice it says there in verse 12, the kings of the east are being prepared. The great river Euphrates and its waters are dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. For them, it's not a great day. For them, it's a horrible day. (laughs) And their doom has finally come. The destruction of the destroyers is at hand. Vengeance is mine, says the Lord. And by the way, when you look at the world today, let me ask you a question. When you look at the earth, would you say that there's peace upon this earth? When you look at the earth, would you say that things are fair and right? Even politically, if you look at the judicial system, would you say that it's a fair, equitable, weighing balance where a blindfold is put upon the judge and he just weighs the facts? No, 
No more, it's just the, fa- just the facts, ma'am. No more. But rather, it seems to me, and I think it probably seems to you, that it's very corrupt. And it's increasingly corrupt. But in that day, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven, will be answered. Later on in Revelation 19, which, by the way, chapter 16 is telling us the whole story till the end. And then it goes back in chapter 17, 18, and 19 and fills in the details. And so parallel to the gathering of these armies of the kings of the east into Armageddon, chapter 19 shows the Lord coming back. And when we see the conflict unfolding in chapter 19, there we see this formidable beast and the mighty kings of the earth, along with their vast armies, coming to war against the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And there it says in Revelation 19, in verse 20, And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in the presence has done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast, and those who worshipped his image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with his flesh. So when Christ returns, it tells us two things. Number one, he captures the beast and the false prophet. And number two, men who have taken the mark of the beast and have worshipped his image and had slain and persecuted, murdered the servants of God, they were judged by the king of kings, the ultimate judge, the Lord of lords, the Lord Jesus himself. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, limb for limb, justice is being meted. And please note, in case you come into the middle of the study and you say, man, that's harsh, these were not innocent people. Through a whole series of events, they, they made conscious choices to choose darkness over light, death over life. They repeatedly disregarded God's warnings and his offers of grace for one reason, spiritual pride. And these series of plagues that we've been studying, we saw that they were intended to prompt repentance. But you know what they did? They did nothing. They never even got the people to change their mind. They rejected him continually. And yet the Bible says that he will not strive with man forever. And when God strives with man, that's called his grace. We sit back and say, God, just leave me alone. You sure you want that? Because by definition, that's hell. (laughs) And he strives with man. And now they stand to the point of no return. No longer are they able to accuse other people to escape their own conscience because of their sin. No longer are they able to avoid their own fate by maligning other people around them. But they're forced into the presence of the king. As the book of Hebrews tells us, and that day everything will be open, naked, and revealed before him with whom we have to do. No more conniving. No more cheating. No more lying. Everything is brought into the light. And there's no fooling God in this day. God's not going to be bought off. Remember Judge Ito in the O.J. Simpson case? And we, we speck and going, dude, the cameras are on and you're playing the game. And every indication, at least from those that observed, and everybody that's like ancient of days remembers that trial. You're thinking, this is, this is horribly corrupt. And yet it's gotten worse. But the king of kings will come and make it right. And thus it tells us in chapter 19, when he does return in Judges, it, the statements following that is righteous and just are your judgments. In other words, everyone's going to look, the, you know, we say hindsight's twenty twenty. Everyone's going to look, we're always afraid of what he's going to do. You're going to get it wrong, God. You're going to make a mistake. You're going to do something evil. And, you know, we go, what if, what if, what if, what if? But the Bible says that when he does what he's going to do, everyone will look at it and go, oh, you got it right. You per- you, all those fears I had, I thought you were going to make this mistake and that mistake because I have a long history with men and women making those kind of mistakes. But God, who is the Holy One, who is other, he's separate, he's different. My ways are above your ways. They're beyond your figuring out. That God comes into the scene. And then when people see him act, even though they've had projections of their own fears upon him for years, when he comes and acts, On behalf of the unrighteousness on the earth, people aren't going to go, man, God, that's not fair, like they do today. They're going to say, God, I can't believe it. You nailed it. It reminds me of that Netflix, you know. Nailed it. You know, you nailed it. Perfect. It's a cooking show. Nonetheless. 
But tragically, Matthew 25 and verse 41 speaks about that judgment that's going to take place at this time at the Battle of Armageddon. And it speaks about the destination of the eternal fires of hell for this particular group of men. And Jesus tells us that hell was originally prepared for the devil and his angels. And hell was not prepared for man. You've heard me say many times that if you choose to follow somebody, you'll go where they're going. And the devils themselves who go out and bring these groups of men, the kings of the east, they're leading people down a path of their own destruction because they care nothing for them, unlike the God of of truth. And if you choose to follow someone, you'll go where they're going, and hell was not created for you, but for the devil and his angels. And thus the drying up of the great river Euphrates signifies, I'd suggest to you, far more than a geographical occurrence. It carries profound spiritual symbolism with a westward movement of the kings towards the city of Jerusalem. Though they're in rebellion against God, they're unwittingly there following God's righteous purpose, moving westward in preparation for God's removal of themselves from the earth. And yet he allows these evil spirits to do his work for him. Interesting. And they're gathered to this place of Armageddon by these demons, as verse 13 says, three unclean spirits. Now consider the irony of them being gathered to the place of God's judgment by the demons themselves. (laughs) Picture this. Led by these evil spirits, which nobody can see. They're, They're not, they're spirits. But driven by the vengeance in their own hearts, these men. They draw near to the city of Jerusalem convinced they're on the cusp of unleashing their own brutal form of punishment and destruction on the Jews. But little do they realize that while they prepare themselves to wreak havoc upon the people of God, they remain oblivious to the fact that they too are being, they're being readied. And they're being readied for their own impending destruction. This is why it's righteous. Though they're, move, they're, they're, they're unrighteous, they're moving in the right direction. But here's the twist, number two. The very demons they ardently serve are the ones guiding them to their inevitable demise. And truth be told, the reason that people serve something or someone is because they think it's going to advantage them. I mean, I don't do this for my health, right? I certainly don't do it for my popularity. (laughs) But you serve somebody because, you know, Jesus comes along and says, you know, great is your reward in heaven. Great is your reward in heaven. He says this over and over again. And I hear Christians say, well, I don't need a reward. I just do it because it's the right thing to do. So you just told me something about yourself. You don't risk yourself for Jesus. Because as soon as you risk yourself, you're going to come under absolute hatred by the enemy. And you will be maligned and persecuted and attacked in every way, six ways and sideways. And the reality is, is his promise of the reward is something that Jesus promised, not me. And if Jesus decided to promise it, it must be necessary for me. And I get sick and tired of Christians saying, I don't need a reward. Well, you need to get busy then. Because as soon as you get busy, you're going to say, oh God, I want to quit. And he says, son, daughter, great is your reward in heaven. And we look to that place as motivation to keep going in this place. And these people align themselves with with these evil spirits who probably they expected a reward from them because you serve for a reward. But the problem is when you end up serving the enemy, he promises you a lot. The Bible says he's an angel of light. But though he promises you something, ultimately he brings harm. And the choice will eventually lead to the deceitful destruction of the person that follows him. That's the nature of evil. The nature of evil, E-V-I-L, is the opposite of L-I-V-E. And so ironically, these demons are executing God's divine plan in leading their followers to their own demise. It's tragedy. Notice the shift in the terminology. These spirits are referred to as unclean spirits in verse 13, and demonic spirits in verse 14. This is very interesting phrasing because the idea of being unclean is something that seems to point back to the Levitical law, right? Clean and unclean. And if you remember in the law, it goes through great lengths to make distinctions between clean, unclean, holy, unholy. There's clean animals, there's unclean animals. There's clean practices, there are unclean practices. Ceremonial washings. 
And God seems to institute these distinctions in part to explain to the children of Israel the nature of right and wrong, good and bad, holy and unholy, and the ultimate purpose in that wasn't just to have a good dietary experience, though it will give you a good dietary experience. The purpose and its ultimate purpose was to explain to them the character of God for a group of people that came out of Egypt. And I believe this was necessary because Israel, as I said, are the people of God. They had been living in Egypt for 400 years. You think about our country. Our country is not even 400 years old. How much have we changed in 400 years? Or could we change in 400 years? And so you realize the children have been there for 400 years, and Egypt, just look at the histories, is full of idolatries and, quite honestly, use a modern term, witchcraft. It was full of all sorts of evil powers that actually worked. And pe people always designate something as being true or false based upon whether or not it works. So you're a pragmatist. No, 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 no. It's not whether or not it works, it's whether or not it's true. Because the Bible teaches there's doctrines of demons. In other words, there's things you can do that actually work, but they're coming from devils. And so it was through the food and the diet and the ritual cleansings of the law that Israel not only learned how to prevent disease, but through those practices began to understand the nature of God himself. God is clean. God is holy. And everything that's not of him or related to him is not clean. And it's unholy. And therefore, it's something that we need to avoid. He's building a context of understanding for a group of people that had no basis to understand the dilemma. So when people had leprosy, for instance, they were supposed to pronounce, they'd come into the city and they'd say, unclean, unclean. And so that in coming into the public assembly and declaring themselves to be unclean, the purpose was that they would not transmit that uncleanness to other people so that we could stay separate from these things, so that we ourselves wouldn't be damaged by it. And it's very interesting because you think about uncleanness or unholiness. In your mind, try to imagine them as the same thing. When you think about uncleanness, what the Bible shows us is that uncleanness is transmittable from person to person. But cleanness or holiness is not transmittable from person to person. If a person has a dirty shirt covered in filth and, let's say, chicken poo. You know, he's screaming ammonia or something like this. And he comes in, he says, unclean, unclean. And if that person that's covered in this chicken poo goes and proceeds to hug everyone in the room, what do you think is going to happen? He's going to transmit the uncleanness to everyone with which he has contact. And rather than becoming clean, you're going to get rather dirty. And the same regard was leprosy. In the same regard, you think of this through. If a person has a clean shirt and he comes into the, the room and everybody has filthy shirts in the room, but he comes in with a clean shirt. When you're a young Christian, you think you can do this, but after a while you figure out that it doesn't work. You say, well, I've got a clean shirt, so what I'm going to do is hug this person and then they're going to become clean. And you hug them, you get dirty. And that was actually, I think it was in the book of Haggai, if I recall correctly. The, priest come, uh, the prophet comes to the priest and he says, let me ask you a question. If that which is holy touches that which is unholy, does that which he touches that's unholy become holy? He says, no. And then he says, if that which is unholy touches that which is holy, does the holy thing become unholy? Yes. What do we learn? Holiness is not transferable. Unholiness is And so these practices to warn the people so that the people may not become unclean. Now jump to the New Testament. And in the New Testament, this particular uncleanness is not a designation for leprosy, though they still had leprosy. But it was a designation for spirituality. And when a person in the New Testament, particularly the Gospels, is demon-possessed, these spirits are called what spirits? They're called unclean spirits. And for a Jewish culture, that triggers a thought that sometimes we don't have in our culture. And so you look at Matthew in chapter 10, verse 1, for instance. It's all over, but for instance, in describing the spirits cast out by the disciples, it says, and he called him to, to himself 12 disciples, Jesus did, and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out. 
Mark's gospel in chapter 1, verse 21, and they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. Isn't it amazing? People will be astonished at your teaching, but they actually prefer an impotent teacher that gives the appearance of knowledge, but has no requirement upon the people. And the most dangerous context very often is the context where ostensibly we're teaching the Bible. But we're not. Jesus wasn't plagiarizing words as is so common today. Jesus spoke with authority. This was coming out of his experience. And they were shocked by it. But don't get too impressed because follow the Gospels. And what you find is that though they were shocked and impressed by it, it made them hate him even more. You speak the truth, people will hate you. We think the validity of our message is the applause of men, yet Jesus said, be careful when all men speak well of you. And then when they don't, we say, what did I do wrong, God? It's like, dude, I totally told you this ahead of time. (laughs) And then he says in verse 23, and immediately, as he's speaking the truth, what did it create in the environment? It caused this demon that for years was sitting inside of this man in church, But not until he came into true teaching did that demon that was actually there begin to come out. Because religion has no power in the spiritual realm. None in the connotative sense of the word. But rather, immediately there was in the synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. And Jesus, the one with actual authority, as the man began to cry out, it says in verse 24, they said, What have you do to, to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know you are the Holy One of God. But Jesus rebuked him, saying, Be silent and come out of him. And the unclean spirit convulsing him and crying out with a loud voice came out of him. It's amazing how much spirits like to talk in the Bible. They're good talkers, constant talkers. And likewise, Luke 6, 6, verse 18, it's these unclean spirits were tormenting men, but in the presence of Jesus, they were cured. And you see this all through the, the, the New Testament, in particular the Gospels. So that what was physical, and this is the point, what was physical and material in the Old Testament, uncleanness and what have you, was now spiritual and moral in the New Testament. The unclean spirits were ruining man, even as leprosy was, but in a different way. But number two, they're not just called unclean spirits, but they're called demonic spirits. And I'd suggest to you that the combination of the words demonic and unclean to describe these spirits, it emphasizes the nature, number one, of their impurity, their defiling nature when they're involved. And number two, the nature of their malevolence. They're unpure, impure, unclean spirits, thus defiling, but they're also malevolent, vicious spirits, and thus demonic, destructive persons. They're not human beings, but they're persons. They're spirits. Destructive persons against man. The Greek word that's used in the New Testament is daimonion, or demonized. The Bible speaks about, particularly the New Testament, about demonic possession. Matthew chapter 17, just for instance, there's so many verses, but just for instance. In verse 14, it says, when they, when they, uh, And when they came to the crowd, a man came up to him and said, up to Jesus, and kneeling before him said, Lord, have mercy on my son, for he has seizures and he suffers terribly. For often he falls into the fire and often is often into the water. Now, what was this demon trying to do? It's trying to kill the boy, get him to commit suicide. I could tell you stories beyond stories about how that's so real. (laughs) And he's constantly harming him. And I need to say as an aside, these demons can cause physical maladies, but it doesn't mean that if you have a physical malady, you're a demon. You have a demon, okay? Clarify. But these demons can actually cause these maladies within men. And then in verse 16, it says, And I brought them to your disciples, and they couldn't heal him. And Jesus answered, O faithless and twisted generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him here to me. And Jesus rebuked the demon, and it came out of him, and the boy was healed instantly. 
We oftentimes think that Jesus kind of said, hey, come out of him in Jesus' name. It's done. Okay, next. You read Mark chapter 5 a little more closely. Read it in the Synoptic Gospels. Read it in John, and you'll find something's taking place. He is laboring in his flesh. He's a man. He's fully God, but he humbles himself to man. And as a man, he's laboring. He kept on saying to the demon, come out of him, come out of him, come out of him. And through this whole process, the demon leaves. Now, maybe in this instance of chapter 17, it did happen instantly, but other times we clearly see in Scripture, it was a process. And literally in Revelation 16, it says, they are for spirits of demons. And amazingly, these unclean spirits emerge from the mouth of the dragon, from the mouth of the beast, which is the Antichrist, and from the mouth of the false prophet. It's the unholy trinity, or as I said last week, Jonathan Kahn said, it's the dark trinity. Now, I understand that demons can come out of the mouth of the beast because he's just a man. He's the Antichrist. That makes sense to me. I can understand the demons coming out of the mouth of a false prophet because he's just a man or might be a woman because there's an interesting parallel between Ahab and Jezebel, the political and religious power. Ahab is the Antichrist. Jezebel is, is the false prophet. It's interesting kind of play that it could be a woman, actually, just like Ahab and Jezebel. That aside, I understand the demon coming out of the mouth of the Antichrist. He's a man. I understand the demon coming out of the mouth of the false prophet. He or she is just a human being. And the presumption is that they're demon-possessed. I get that. That makes sense. But what I don't understand is the idea that this demon is coming out of the mouth of the dragon. The dragon is the devil. Chapter 12 tells us of the demon itself. So the idea that this demon living inside of the devil, how in the world does that work? And I think to myself, well, we have basically two possibilities. Behind the notion that these evil spirits coming out of the mouth of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. Number one, when the demons come out of the mouths of this evil trinity, it could be suggesting that the evil trinity is commanding these spirits by their voices themselves. In other words, the argument, when they come out of them, out of their mouths, it wasn't that they were possessed by these spirits and that's why it came out of them, but rather they had command over these spirits and these spirits did whatever evil, the evil trinity wanted them to do. One possibility. The second possibility, it could signify that these demons can inhabit both humans and even the devil himself, right? Notice the demon came out of the devil. And if this is the case, that would reveal, I'd suggest to you, in and of itself, that these demons are distinct from the devils. That is, they're not the same thing. And why do I say that? Because we tend to think the demons are fallen angels, just like the devil's a fallen angel. The devil is a fallen angel, but he's not a demon. And so I asked myself then, I said, well, where do these demons then come from? Well, again, there's two possibilities. Number one, these demons are spirits, some people argue. They're spirits of people that have already died. And that person died and their spirit is roaming the earth. It's haunting the earth. Once in a while when you play with the Ouija board, you can see, you know, some old person. You know what's interesting? People that have claimed to see these things always see somebody in like Victorian clothes. It's always someone older, back. And weird as it sounds... From my perspective, unfortunately, I've encountered this stuff. Where does it sound? People have always described them as kind of like a translucent blue. I mean, that's just weird. Uh, Green, yes, I understand, because, ugh, but blue, really. I've gone to people's houses when they're saying there's the, the little kids are describing what they saw. The husband's describing what he hears on the roof of their house at night. Uh, It turns out that the mom was actually into uh, occultism, uh, paganism of some sort or another, and she was inviting this thing into the house. When confronted about it, she didn't want to deal with it. And then, not to be too much surprised, their daughter comes to church and begins to describe this little translucent blue little boy that's appearing to her downstairs and telling her to do bad stuff. He had spiky hair on top, and she goes into this great detail and says, a little girl. That's not the only account that I have. I have scores, but they always come and they look like they're human beings. And so people naturally say, oh, look, it's human beings. I was watching that, uh, what is that, James May in the, uh, when they're traveling Europe, and that guy's hilarious, oh my gosh. And uh, it was on Prime. And as they're in Rome, in the background, you can see these people like in the old Roman garb walking around. 
I'm thinking, what in the world is going? It's caught on camera. And they put it on their video. I saw it with the kids. I said, what in the heck is that? And we looked it up and they said, oh yeah, a lot of people have been talking about it. They're saying, what in the world happened? We don't know. And many people have caught things on film, on camera, of actual entities. Lest you think that I'm crazy, which I am, but for different reasons. I know what I've seen. Not crazy. We don't want to glorify them, but they're real. They're real. And when someone says, I saw ghosts, I hate to break it to you, there's no such thing as ghosts. The Bible says that these evil spirits are able to transform themselves. They're able to present themselves as something that they're not. And if they can lead you to believe that, you know, they're grandpa from, and he's coming back to talk to you, sure, we'll put on that costume if that'll convince you. But there's no such thing as ghosts. And I can say that biblically, because if you see something that was a ghost, know this, it was most likely a demon. In the Bible, why, why can I say that? Because for two reasons. The Bible says that for the Christian, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The body's not the real you. The body goes into the grave, and it's awaiting a resurrection body. In the meantime, you have a body that God gives you in the heavens, awaiting that body that's going to be restored back upon earth that has no sin within it. And the Bible says that we go into the heavenly presence of the Lord. What is that, 2 Corinthians 5, I think? And he says, he says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But for the non-Christian, the Bible teaches that there's a place called Hades, not Gehenna, Hades, where non-believers await the fair judgments of God. But never in the Bible is the doctrine of ghosts taught. But it does teach the doctrine of demons. It does teach the doctrine of the fall of the angels but never the doctrine of ghosts. Samuel is raised up in the presence of the witch of Endor, but he's not roaming the earth. And so that leads us to the second speculation as to the origin of these demons themselves. They're not disembodied spirits of your loved ones or any loved one. But the second possibility is that some people believe is that the demons are considered to be the Nephilim in Genesis in chapter 6. And in this belief, they believe that the, the demons are actually the offspring resulting from the union between the fallen angels, referred to as the sons of God, and the human women known as the daughters of men. And as crazy as that sounds, know this, every ancient society and the history of the world records these things happening. The whole idea behind Baphomet, half goat, half man, would anybody say that's a clean or an unclean union? Unless you live in Montana, everyone say, hey, having procreation with goats and, and sheep is wrong, <laughs> you know? And it's not possible to have anything productive coming out of that. And so what you find is Satanism is often the glorification of unholy unions. So at the base of Baphomet is two small children. It's an unholy union. Two things don't belong together. Anything that doesn't belong together becomes glorified. So have the two pink ones and the two blue ones come together. It'll help keep Earth's population down. But on top of that, it'll magnify the original sin that we engaged in all the way back in Genesis 6, where the unholy union, two unlike parts, came together, the sons of God, came into the daughters of men. All these representations were, were magnifications of the principle of the unclean union, the unholy union of two unlike parts. And as a consequence of this unholy union, if you just take Genesis 6 scientifically, is the Nephilim were born. Some people say, no, as demon-possessed men went into regular not-possessed women. If that was all of that it was, and their bodies were just creating with other bodies, how do you explain the Nephilim? No, it wasn't human demon-possessed men, because if you follow the term sons of God throughout the scripture, a son of God is someone directly created by the hand of God. Adam was a son of God. He was directly created by the hand of God. But guess what? His children were called sons of Adam, not sons of God. 
And in the same regard, when you're born again, John chapter 1 says that Jesus comes, he dies, does his work, so that you, watch this, might become sons of God. we got a doctrine today that everybody's sons of God. I wish it was true, but it's not. We are all sons of Adam. And therefore, we have to come into a new race of man with a new federal head. It's called the Lord Jesus Christ, and become part of his family. So the sons of God are not natural to humanity. Therefore, it can't be demon-possessed men, but rather the sons of God directly created by the hand of God, Adam, the angels, and in his humanity, Jesus is called a son of God. We get that back. We think the son of God is a term of his deity. It's not. He is God, but the son of man is a term of his deity. I don't have time to go into that. Go back and listen to my John chapter 5 studies. I believe I go into great detail on that. And by the way, R.C. Sproul tends to agree with me. Rather, I'd, I'd never heard his Bible study until after I taught it. I taught it years, uh, years ago, and then about two or three years ago, I saw a study by him, and he was saying the exact same thing. I said, thank you very much. <laughs> I bow myself out and praise R.C. Sproul, <laughs> so, <laughs> who just went home to be with the Lord. But this concept of the hybrid beings, you know what a hybrid is, right? Part divine, part human, they were created. It worked. This whole phenomenon in the UFO thing, that the UFOs are always concerned with what? Probing. You know, the worst car ever named, a great engine, was the Ford Probe. And people would ask me, you know, I would tell them, I've got a probe. And they would look at me like, the car! <laughs> But the idea behind these probings is always sexual in nature. There are no such thing, even as there's no ghosts, there's no such thing as UFOs. They don't exist. But there are fallen ones. There are fallen ones. And those fallen ones go into, even as the modern UFO thing is getting into more and more, they go into human beings and are apparently able to do it. People argue against it. They say, no, no, Jesus said, you know, in heaven, they're going to be like the angels. They're not going to be married or given to marriage. Yeah, we're not going to get married in heaven, but it's not a statement that the fallen ones can't actually procreate. Every indication in the Bible is that Jesus comes to, to Abraham in Genesis 18, and he has two men with him. And then you read chapter 19, and you find out those two men were actually angels. It tells us in the book of Hebrews that you can be entertaining angels unaware. And the reason you can entertain angels unaware is because you weren't aware. They were angels because they looked just like men. In Genesis 19, it says, and 18, it says they ate bread with him. And so it appears that these angelic beings have this capacity to take on flesh and bone in some way or another. And so they create these, these hybrids, but when those hybrids die, where do they go? So when the flood came and destroyed their physical bodies in Genesis 7, their spirits continued to exist on earth because their unholy nature prevented them from, for the lack of a better term, going to heaven. And thus, as a result, their disembodied spirits, the argument would go, continued to wander the earth in search of bodies to possess. They used to have a body, now they don't, and they're longing to get back into another body. And thus, demonic possession in the Bible, as the theory goes, is that these demons, who used to be Nephilim on the earth, the mighty men of old, who perished in the flood and now roam the earth looking for a body to possess, are actually the ones creating all the hell and chaos upon this earth. And that sounds crazy, but there it is. And if this is the case, according to this line of thinking, the demons, therefore, then, have basically two main desires. On the one hand, they seek to experience the pleasures and the sensations of human life, including sexuality, touch, interaction with the physical world. As disembodied spirits, they can't do this. As disembodied spirits, all they can do is engage in voyeurism. You want to know what the spirit behind voyeurism is? I mean, that's what it is. There's a spirit behind that. Yet on the other hand, they harbor a deep-seated resentment and hatred towards man upon whom they rely 
for their form of any interaction with the world. And so they use men, but they hate men. I mean, that's typically kind of thing. The person that you're using, you end up hating, right? I saw this years ago when we used to have a food bank. And this guy came in, he was homeless. And the sheer hatred of this man for me because I was giving him something free. And you find that it gradually grows into that where you despise the people that are providing for you. It's very interesting, very interesting pattern. And believe it or not, this idea actually aligns with Scripture, particularly in the Gospels when it comes to these demons. And all that to say is in Revelation 16, these unclean and demonic spirits, so what is the effect they're producing on culture? Defiling malevolence, hatred, viciousness towards your fellow man. These unclean and demonic spirits go out and gather the men of the earth for battle against Jerusalem. I mean, you see what's going on today in the world, and you think, well, that's crazy. We're on the cusp. We're probably on the cusp of Gog and Magog, which is not Armageddon. Go back and listen to last week's study. I go into detail on that. But it's the same spirit. The same spirit in Gog and Magog is the same spirit as Armageddon. Gog and Magog can happen at any time. It could happen tonight. We have a resident that wants war for a healthy distraction. And you've got Iran whose stated purpose is to bring about war with the United States, the great Satan, and the small Satan. And you have all sorts of dynamics taking place that very likely you could find yourself in all-out nuclear war. You're finding liberals. I saw this video of a guy standing up to Hillary Clinton, and she is, or Hillary, excuse me, I keep forgetting which one she is. People disappear around her, so I, anyway. And it's this liberal young man, furious. He says, you're a warmonger. You're trying to get us into war. And they are. Because it allows them to take away your rights and push their agenda. But the spirit behind it is demonic. It's a demonic spirit. It feels empowering, and they go with it. And so they go out. These spirits go out through the entire world. It's a spirit that exists today, but it's going to be mass demon possession in that day. And they defile the men, making them even more unclean. And they drive the men into malevolence because they're demonic spirits. And add this to the good speculation that the last days will be known for mass possession of mankind. And so in Matthew chapter 24, Jesus describes this event and how evil it's going to get. And he says, for the sake of the elect, those days must be shortened. God in his grace is going to shorten the days. But he's drawing all the wickedness. He's allowing men's hearts to be fully manifest. He brings them to the city of Jerusalem. They're convinced that they're going to wipe out the enemy, the Jews. And God says, I'm bringing you to this place so I can judge you. And therefore, it was a righteous decision. They were moving westward according to the plan of God. And as previously mentioned, our focus lies on two significant cities, Jerusalem and Babylon. And the kings of the east are advancing towards Jerusalem, the very city where the King Messiah is destined to rule. It's affirmed to us in Psalm 2, which we've read many times in these last number of months where the Lord says, I will set my king on Zion. And Zion becomes the place where the king, the Messiah, is going to rule. And thus it becomes a point of hostility for men, yes, but the powers behind those men. If we can prevent the Messiah from ruling, we can delay our inevitable demise and destruction in hell, the demons would argue. And thus, this impending rule of Christ in Jerusalem signifies, therefore, the ultimate overthrow of the devil's dominion upon the earth. And he's not going to have that. The devils aren't going to do that. And I would suggest to you the hostility, the source of the hostility against the Jews, even today, right now, it's the same spirit. It seems to stem from the Jews' integral role in the fulfillment of the promises of God a promise rooted in the lineage of David, according to the flesh, which is a Jew, Judah, Jew, 
and the promise for someone from his line to rule upon the earth. And when the Messiah does rule, guess what happens to the devils? They're destroyed. And thus it becomes evident that the Jewish people become the target of the devil's ire throughout time for this very reason. If you can destroy the people through whom the Messiah will come to rule on the earth, then in theory you can prevent the rule of the Messiah upon the earth. That's why he's doing it. They can't prevent it, but they can kick the can down the road. And thus it appears that the devil's strategy is to hinder, even as it is today, you're seeing little blurps of the spirit today in the conflict. The Hamas, probably Hezbollah soon. And it appears the devil's strategy is to hinder God's plan by attempting to thwart the city of Jerusalem and its inhabitants, ultimately preventing the realization of Messiah's prophesied reign where he will destroy their kingdom. And what do we see today? Again, we see that same spirit at work. And they're just driven to destroy the context in which Messiah will rule. It doesn't make sense. Whenever you see something that's so twisted, you see them do the horrible things they did. They invade the country, Hamas did. They cut off the heads of children, babies, infants. They burn the children alive. They mal- I mean, the, the description I gave you last week is enough. I'm not going to repeat it. And yet, people in our country and across the world are rallying for that? When it is so perverted, demonic. When it is so impure, unclean. Something else is at work. And the reason this all happens in one sense, not to blame God, but say the fact that God gave men free wills. And because he gave them free wills, he allows them to make choices And those choices can shape events upon the earth. And that's actually the cause of these problems. You see, God had to give man free will. If he didn't, there's no love. And you can't have a loving relationship without a free will. And so God chose to give man a free will. And so that while opposing God's people may not entirely obstruct God's plan, it does appear that such obstructions can introduce delays to God's plan. You say, well, has that ever happened in the Bible? Mm Mm-hmm. God's going to do what he's going to do, but there's precedent in the Scripture for delays. Think about Israel. Israel was supposed to receive the Messiah 2,000 years ago, but they in part rejected the Messiah. The early church was all Jewish, but the national leaders rejected him. And so what did God do? He moves on to plan B. He goes, fine. The first shall be last. The last shall be first. I'll switch roles. Jews, you were supposed to lead the Gentiles to Christ. But guess what? Because you rejected the Messiah, now the Gentiles are going to lead you to Christ. And he switches to plan B. And now we use the Gentiles to bring Israel to Christ. So that, again, the first shall be last and the last shall be first. The free wills of man didn't destroy God's plan. But it appears that in that it can delay God's plan. But it can only delay God's plan to a point. And what point is that? The point when it gets so evil, so perverse, God must cut it off. And thus here in this situation with the recognition that time is limited... The forces of darkness are determined to eliminate the people of God and ipso facto disrupt the timing of their demise. But Revelation 16 shows us that their plan is not going to work, that apparently things have gotten to the boiling point, that things on earth have gotten so bad that the devil's tactics of delay, 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 disrupt, disrupt, disrupt is not going to work anymore. I can say from my own life, I can see where situations and possibilities were presented right before me. And the devil gets in through the free wills of men and disrupts that whole cycle and ruins things accordingly. And so God deceives the wisdom of the demons by allowing them to gather their armies at Armageddon 
and an attack upon Jerusalem, giving them the false confidence that they can delay God's plan once again. And yet in order for something this grand to happen, God has to take actions. Namely, he has to dry up the river Euphrates so they can cross. But as opposed to gaining victory and delaying the inevitable, they meet their, what is their doom in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes and sets up his kingdom. And it tells us that he justly comes, judges, and makes war. And like Ahab in 1 Kings 22, God, reread the passage, God sends a deceiving spirit, just like here, to convince him to go to battle so that in the battle he'd be destroyed. Ahab's the Antichrist at that time. Jezebel is the false prophet at that time. There's nothing redeemable about Jezebel. <laughs> someone was telling me about a Bible study someone was giving here years ago in the church, talking about, you know, let's talk about the redeeming qualities of Jezebel. Are you Jesus speaks about her in, the, in Revelation 2 and 3. Are you kidding me? There's no redeeming. Her name means that she's the one that was drawing up the devil from the pits. <laughs> A very evil person. And in the same regard, he allows these evil spirits to come and deceive those people, the kings of the earth, just like Ahab but not to lead them to victory, but to lead them to their own destruction. And you know, God always tells us what's going to happen before it happens. Did you know that? God always says, you know, this is the way it's going to happen in the beginning. And I look at my own life, and the things that he has said are going to happen have happened to me. And then I'm still surprised. And so I just sit back and I say, Lord, do I really believe you? I, apparently I don't. I mean, I kind of trust you, but then when it, you know, the rubber meets the road, I'm thinking, God, what's going on? He's like, dude, I told you this was going to happen. <laughs> okay. I just didn't think it was going to happen. <laughs> but I believe you. <laughs> the contradiction. I hate living inside of me sometimes. But it's what the man said, Lord, I believe you, but help my unbelief. And God always tells us things in advance so that we can avoid the day of trial. You say, avoid the day of trial? Jesus said, pray this way. Pray that you can escape these things. What things? The things we just described. And it would be horrible for Jesus to say, pray that you can escape them, but <laughs> you can't. Oh, man. <laughs> but pray that you can escape them. And so my, my prayer is not, Lord, give me the resolve. I'm going to fight. Okay, I'll fight till the day I die. I'm already doing that. I don't, it's not something I'm going to do in the future. I'm already doing that. But my prayer is, Lord, let me escape this. Don't let me even see this. And people argue, well, he escapes you through the trial, kind of like, you know, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and other people say he escapes you. He doesn't even put you inside of the fire. Personally, I'm not masochistic. I'm voting for not even put in the fire. I just, I'm perfectly fine with just jumping to be with the Lord. And maybe we'll talk about that next week. But it still comes down to the fact, this mass demon possession, to hinder ultimately the reign of the king that will put down the demons, and the defilement gets worse and worse upon planet Earth. But the saint is one who's saying, whether it's going to be seen in my life or not, the spirit that's behind this is here now. We see it with Hamas. We see it with all these evil, evil men. And the prayer continually and increasingly among the Christian is, Lord, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven, and Lord, I pray in the name of Jesus that I could escape these things. So, Lord, I pray that you would give grace and wisdom as we confront so many maladies on the earth, so many situations. The more I talk with these people in the church, I realize that so many of them are going through such tragic events on a regular basis. And it can be so consuming in our own lives that we forget that it's a spirit and our brothers and sisters are going through the same trials. 
We begin to highlight our own pain as being supreme and we become cold-hearted. Or as Jesus said, in the last days, the love of men most is going to grow cold. But Lord, your word in Hebrew says, encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that nobody would be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And God, I pray that our times together would be an encouragement. Give us tender hearts. And when we're overwhelmed, let us have humble hearts with the right people. Don't pour your heart out to anybody. That's dangerous. But God, I pray that you would hear our prayers. Help us to understand. Help us to believe you. We do believe you, but help our unbelief. And even though you said, I've told you ahead of time, so that when these things happen, you won't lose heart, the reality is these things happen and we lose heart, which betrays that we haven't really believed you. We do believe you, but we don't. And so, Lord, strengthen our faith. Help us to go westward, young man, and help us to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.